So Bronco was back in town recently and, um, you know, he's been gone for a few months. He's been off promoting his book. And, you know, one of the things we do a lot of times we watch, we just kind of hate watch movies while, you know, movies you can talk over, whatever. And somehow we found our way. I, I already have forgotten how this happened. We found our way to the the new Jumanji movie. With Dwayne The Rock Johnson. With Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Or as I later discovered, one of the two new Jumanji movies, because this That's was right. only the first. There was Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, and then Jumanji The Next Level, mm-hmm. which we're about halfway through. I, I plan to finish it because I'm a Jumanji completist. But so have you seen either of these movies? No, I, I got off the train after the Robin Williams okay. Jumanji. So as soon as this movie finished, I thought I have to tell. I can't wait to talk to Will about this movie because <laughs> I overuse this. But one of my pet peeves on this podcast, as longtime listeners of the show will know, is blockbusters. I hate them. Like the current kind of zeitgeist of blockbusters that are, I don't know, four or five or in some cases 10 times as expensive as like blockbusters in the 70s or 80s were and are just so, so bad. You know, Will and I recorded an episode after coming out of The Rise of Skywalker. And I mean, that episode is just like an hour and a half of us just descending into madness Uh at the sheer incoherence of what we've just seen. Now... This Jumanji movie was not bad quite in the way that, that, like, The Rise of Skywalker is bad because it's attempting to kind of tie up all these loose ends and be this contribution to deep lore, and it's just utterly incoherent, doesn't even follow from the previous film, let alone the original trilogy or anything else. This Jumanji movie, okay, where do I even begin? Can I just say my perception of these last two Jumanji movies, which I didn't see, but I've seen the posters, and, and I see them and I think... Well, that looks like a a consensus choice around Christmas. You've got a gigantic family who needs to go do something together, and this will this will have something for everybody. Right. right. Nobody's going to be over the moon about, but yeah, we can get the whole family here. Okay. So let me let me tell you about uh, Jumanji: Welcome to the Jungle. Okay. So you can tell this is a movie that where the script was not originally a Jumanji script. And someone figured out mm. we just got it. We got to plaster something onto this. There's something. <laughs> Everything's got to be a brand. Someone, yeah. Someone in a boardroom was like, "Folks, you know, this what is are the good. properties we own?" Yeah, there's a missing ingredient, and someone's like, "Hey, what about that movie Jumanji?" The movie very hastily abandons the premise of the original Jumanji. It's not which, a board game anymore. Well, so the board game sort of appears, and then through a bunch of stuff that's it's not really clear, it somehow becomes a video game. Then what's extraordinary is the setup, the sort of 20 or 30 minutes before Jumanji actually kind of appears. It's like the Breakfast Club. It's a bunch of different high school students who kind of get in trouble for different reasons. They end up in detention. And, you know, there's the, the popular pretty girl. Then there's the girl that's supposed to be ugly, but is like basically just as pretty. And she's also in detention, who's like... It's been a long time since I've seen The Breakfast Club, but isn't there like a whole thing where they... There's the Ali there's Sheedy the goth, character. The goth yeah. girl. It's, yeah. like, it's like that. And then there's you know a bunch of other people. I think there's four of them. They're in detention and they have some menial task they have to perform. And then they see this old gaming system. They're like, ah, oh, it's like an old Nintendo or something. Mm. And it's this game, Jumanji, and it's asking them to select characters. They all select a character. Before they know it, they're sucked into the game. And so then these characters that you've really just gotten to know 20 minutes earlier all assume the bodies of other people. So the the scrawny one you know one of the kind of scrawny male protagonists 
becomes The Rock. Mm-hmm. They all become someone different. And then they're in Jumanji, which is now a video game. So 20 or 30 minutes in, the movie's already like a mashup of Jumanji, The Breakfast Club, and Freaky Friday. Like it literally is just like, okay, we got these templates. What if we sort of combine them? Man, I hear that and I think, what's the problem? <laughs> so then you have the, the world of Jumanji, which... As I recall, in the original Jumanji, you never actually got to see inside Jumanji. That's true, He gets sucked into the game, but you don't get sucked in there with him. Like, Robin Williams gets sucked in there as a kid, and then he comes out, and then the two characters, like, as an adult... And you imagine all the adventures he might have had. And nevertheless, Jumanji has kind of a very distinctive aesthetic, where it's kind of like this... I don't know, like 19th century sort of British colonial safari. I mean, it's, I can't quite articulate what it is, but people know, you, yeah. you know, you know it when you see it. You remember the hunter who was in the original the hunter, Jumanji? Yeah. Who, who importantly, uh, the, the actor that played the hunter he, also yeah. played the dad. And, and, and he also played the butler in Richie Rich. That's true. Actually, I was like, where have I seen him before? Yeah. I was like, oh, right, yeah. right. In another, from another great film. <laughs> That's a future episode right there, <laughs> oh, Richie Rich. 100%. The Wolf of Wall Street of its day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> By the way, if people can't uh, tell, well, you definitely can tell. I'm sick still. I've been sick for a couple weeks. I've had a cold. I feel fine, but my voice is a little shot. No, it's so. nice. You sound like Lauren Bacall. Uh, I've been getting that a lot. Yeah. Um, anyway, so back to Jumanji. So the original Jumanji looks like an art film compared to, you know, you think about all the things in the in the original Jumanji where you're like, there's the whole plot with the, the factory worker. The dad is like a, yeah. he's an oppressive capitalist and he crushes, you know, the, the Kevin, whatever his name is, whatever the Robin Williams character's name is when he's a kid. I just think uh, every 90s yeah. movie, the kid is called Kevin. That sounds um, right. Kevin in Home Alone. It might as well be Kevin and Jumanji. I don't remember. Uh, sound off in the <laughs> sound off in the comments. But so, you know, you remember there's all this stuff that happens and you realize he's got this like difficult relationship with his dad and all this kind of stuff. And then the hunter is just the dad. There's all this stuff going on. And it's like you build yeah. a real, you know, he, he, gets, Freudian, he, gets be- he gets beaten up. Like there's all this yeah. stuff that happens in this new Jumanji None of that happens. There's no kind of connection to the characters. I, why am I saying this as if I care? Anyway, I no, just, I'm, you're I actually kind to, of sucking me into this. I, I yeah. have to. I have to like litigate this. As soon as I watched the movie, I was like, I can't wait to. to well, it's interesting because it's like it's what? like yeah, like they they've dehistoricized the Jumanji okay. game. They've depoliticized yes. it. And and this is where I was going next. So then the world of Jumanji is now just like anything that they want it to be. And now it's a video game. Uh-huh. So there's like randomly just people like on motorcycles that attack them. So now there are motorcycles in Jumanji. There's an allusion to like a plane or there's like planes and stuff. The aesthetic is like constantly changing. Like one minute it's like a jungle thing. And then they're in a sort of like Moroccan style market or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's all over the place. And, you know, I haven't finished the movie yet, but in the second one, it goes from a jungle theme to like a sort of Game of Thrones. There's like a villain who's like a Game of Thrones villain. And Bronco's like, hey, is that the guy from Game of Thrones? And it literally is the guy that plays the mountain on Game of Thrones. Like they are by the second movie. They're literally just like, oh, let's get some Game of Thrones shit in here. So the movie is just like all over the place, like aesthetically. It sounds like, like Ready Player One. You, well, okay, which is also on Netflix, and I think we should, we should subject watch ourselves yeah. to it. Yeah. So the movie, it's like it is just a pastiche. I can't believe we've already recorded like ten minutes on this. Um, we watched a real movie this week, which we'll get to. <laughs> so the movie then like barely gets anything out of the fact that they're in a video game, like having created this new conceit. It's like okay, forget everything you knew about Jumanji. It's a video game now. 
it's like there's one bit where there's like an end there like a guy that just keeps repeating the same thing over and over again no matter what they say to him and someone's like oh he's an npc and then there's a thing where they figure out if they like push their chest they get like a menu that has their strengths and weaknesses Mm. and the guy who's in the body of the rock one of his like powers is like smoldering so he'll smolder jack black like the attractive popular girl like becomes jack black Hmm. endless classic comedy generated out of that disjuncture and like this is pretty much the movie uh nick jonas randomly appears oh and then the one thing the film does to tie i don't want to get so passionate about this the one thing the film does to tie jumanji to the original is like i think van pelt who was the hunter like, that's right appears in the movie but it's just like a different guy it's like, not the the british guy no, from from richie rich which well that upsets me because like because that like, guy definitely needs work <laughs> well because that guy had a big year there where yeah. he was in those two yeah, movies yeah. that we all saw but and so pay i pay respect to jumanji history yeah bring him back and so and so the only sort of concession it makes to the jumanji lore <laughs> that the moment where it's like because all these films suffer from the same thing. You know, if you go back to our very first Patreon episode on Star Wars The Last Jedi, one of the complaints I had was like, is this a remake or is it a sequel? The problem is it's both. And you can't be both. Like, you can't you can't relaunch something and be like, oh, we're, we're bringing this thing back, this familiar kind of series of idioms, like visual idioms and kind of narratives, but it's just like, it's a new thing that's like severed from the original. But then, oh, also this is like, adding to the lore of the original and all these almost all these things are trying to do both and i think that's one of the things that makes them so bad jumanji turns out no exception so nick jonas shows up and he's like staying in some treehouse or something Mm -hmm. and then there's like a carving on the tree where it's like maybe it's alan is the name of the original robin Williams. Oh, that was it that was it it's like and it's like you know alan was here or something and and it turns out that he's like living in the he's trapped in the game as well Mm -hmm. Turns out you see him later in the real world for like 20 seconds and he's played inexplicably by Colin Hanks, mm-hmm. which is very funny. But yeah, so that's the only concession that Jumanji makes to the original movie. I, did, I didn't, when the film finished, I didn't know there was a sequel. So I'm thinking like, well, this is absolute dog shit. Like who would, who would watch this? I bet you this is one of those, like, I bet you spent 300 million making this total flop. Do you know, guess how much money this movie made? It made 400 million domestic. It made almost a billion worldwide. Yeah. It made like 980 million or something. And, and you know, this, this is where, this is where you lose me, Luke, because this is a movie, this is a movie that's for the real people. This is a movie that's for <laughs> families at Christmas who what do they want to see they want some fun jokes they want they want some jokes about uh, a attractive woman who's stuck in jack black's body they want to see charming movie stars like mr the like, rock johnson like, like classic movie star nick jonas uh, Ke- kevin hart you know guys who work hard and are funny and, and and give you bang for your buck and they want to see bright colors and they want to see something that both the, the child and the grandma can both see and not complain about and they can get the conversation off on pleasant matters for two hours honestly don't tell me i think you have to have some empathy for just the regular the regular joe popcorn out there trying to have a nice time don't tell me that capitalism is the best you know mode of production (laughs) that can exist capitalism can't even give you a decent jumanji sequel so am i triangulating here any, any any economic system that can't produce a decent jumanji sequel that is like 
faithful to the lore of original Jumanji is not something we should be structuring our society around. That's my take. I just think that if you want to start a revolution, you're going to need to get those families on board. And one way to get them on board is to tell them that, that actually you liked Jumanji <laughs> and, and just respect, respect, respect the nice time they had at Christmas going to see this, you know, probably not very good movie. We should, we should nationalize Jumanji. I, take. You know what I, I want to say about Jumanji, which I haven't seen and I guarantee I never will. <laughs> I've never no, been no. more you certain that about says says a man who watched Jungle to Jungle with me recently. <laughs> but you already watched Jumanji with Bronco, and I'm trying to think of what other circumstance. Ah, maybe Justin would watch Jumanji with me. <laughs> Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I find him interesting as a movie star because he is. There's something about him that that is so. 2020 like he's an incredibly postmodern movie star he's like really muscular but he's like too muscular yeah like like he's too muscular to take seriously yeah he's like sort of an action star but he's always sort of like winking i feel like he's been in so many of those movies that are like there's a sort of like critical mass of those type movies where it's like hey this is a big serious muscly guy that you've seen in the action movies what if he was in a jokey movie and i feel like he's been in a whole bunch of those it's basically all he does including the fast and furious movies which are all pretty tongue-in-cheek i also watched rampage recently which is another actually that one i have seen on on netflix when you go to that thing that's like stuff you may like like stuff like this right they had original jumanji they had the new jumanji the first one not the next level Mm -hmm. get get it together netflix Mm -hmm. And then in the same, like, just in the top two rows, there were, like, three more things all with The Rock in them, mm-hmm. including Rampage, which is another movie I watched recently. Well, I'm glad, folks, after the week we've had that we were able to get your mind off all of what ails society right now. As you can hear, Luke has the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you need entertainment in troubled times like this. You're all self-quarantining, and you need something to listen to to pass the time. And that's why I... A well, Will, Will, Will came I'm here. I'm a warrior. Will came here two weeks ago, and actually, you know, we put the Gore Lieberman Studios under quarantine. Yeah. And, and Will and I have just been watching dog shit movies like constantly for the last two weeks. We, I haven't, we haven't laughed. Haven't we spoken haven't, to my loved ones. No. 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 Uh, Luke doesn't actually have the coronavirus, folks. It's okay. Uh, at least I don't think you have the coronavirus. <laughs> it's it's uh, uh, interesting times, isn't it? You know. <laughs> Good, good riff. <laughs> what the fuck? Interesting times, folks. Are they? Do you think they're gonna cancel the Democratic primary? You know, just because we need unity right now. We're gonna get. We're gonna probably talk about that at the end. But I legitimately would not be surprised if they use like they've already used the coronavirus to change the format of the debate on Sunday so that Biden no audience. No, yeah. So there's no. And, and Which also, is fine, frankly, because we don't need any we more don't need, fucking like, more plants. Fucking millionaire donors, like who go to all these like that Booing South Carolina him, yeah. debate was literally just like people paying thousands of dollars yeah. to go. So I welcome but, that. That's fine. yeah, yeah. But I, it's like I would not be surprised if they use it to be like, well, because of the coronavirus, Joe Biden actually can't speak. Uh, he can't do interviews. He can't come out in public. He certainly can't he, debate Bernie Sanders. He, he's too busy strategizing for how to beat this thing. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, he's coming up with a master plan. 
Anyway, we'll 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 get. To that. And they'll close a bunch of polling stations. That's that's right. Yeah, the ones concern. that are at the ones that are at college campuses that's, that's and, right. and in uh, yeah. poor neighborhoods, yeah, Latino neighborhoods. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> But I do want to ask you about your trip to the States, which is where you contracted whatever ailment <laughs> no, you No, I got, I got it before. Okay. Uh-huh. So it sounds like it was a bad trip. Well, it wasn't quite what I planned because I got sick basically the day before I flew out. Like, I basically flew in order to be sick in not one but two states. <laughs> I visited beautiful Vermont, where actually my dad lives. I, I got to uh, look at the metropolis of Brattleboro from my very sickly state, which mm-hmm. is... Apparently the second biggest, I mean, I don't want to call it a city mm-hmm. in Vermont, but um, if people haven't been to Vermont, this was actually my second time going in the last like eight or nine months. It is really beautiful. It's a remarkable place. Where my dad lives, there are all these kind of old cemeteries. There's a cemetery where the guy who built his house, which is quite an old house, is actually buried. And it, I don't know, it's just a very kind of hauntingly beautiful place. But so... I was mostly bedridden while there, and then I went back into Boston mm-hmm. um, and was mostly bedridden there too. But on my first morning there, I did go straight from the airport to Boston Common, where Bernie Sanders was holding a rally. So I got to uh, I got to go to a Bernie rally, which was great. And I tweeted to this effect at the time, but not that I was expecting to find anything different. But it is really incredible. You, you go to one of these things, and I mean... Like, of course, it is literally the opposite of the cruel caricature that we're just constantly being bombarded with in these Mm -hmm. like media meta narratives full of people of all ages and, you know, different backgrounds who are just the most earnest people ever. And all of the applause lines are ending mass incarceration and stopping war, taxing the billionaire class and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why it feels this way, but it feels almost like cliche, I guess, to complain about this. But like, it is so cruel and abusive and and nasty what has been done since 2016 with the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, with all these people that support it by cable news in particular. Like, I think a few years ago, I was of the opinion that cable news was kind of this, maybe not minor, but it was just like an irritant, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think at this point, I'm pretty much of the opinion that cable news is is one of the most insidious forces in American life. And it is like a beast that needs to be slayed. Like, this is getting a bit off topic, but after Chris Matthews had his like, you know, ridiculous mm-hmm. rant on the, the night of the Nevada caucus, I wrote this piece for Jacobin where I did kind of a deeper dive into Chris Matthews than I'd ever done before. And I learned about him, you know, because apart from just seeing him on TV, I didn't really know much about him. And he really is the quintessential cable news personality. He's a guy who, you know, just kind of appears on TV and offers these half-baked opinions. And, you know, he's written several books that are basically just about beltway social climbing and how, like, you can adapt the lessons of beltway social climbing to your life. I was surprised to learn that the title Hardball is not actually what I thought it meant. Yeah. I thought it meant that he was asking tough questions and holding the power to account. No, it's like you got to play hardball in your life, just like the politicians do. I found a wonderful clip of Jon Stewart at his very best, actually, like a really good... A reminder that Jon Stewart had some really good qualities where he basically had Matthews on his show in 2007, where Matthews had some stupid book out called Life is a, Life is a Campaign or something. Mm. And he just basically humiliates Matthews. <laughs> and he says, like, this seems like, like a self-hurt book, he says. Like, it's just a recipe for sadness. Like, if you live your life this way. And Matthews, 
even his, his defense of the book makes it sound even worse because he just he just says like oh you know these these people that get to the top they're really good at all kinds of things and you, you don't have to believe a word they say and and Stewart is just like incredulous and he's just like that's ridiculous like right I mean you're just this you know it's just amoral what you're talking yeah. about and you know Matthews doesn't really have a good defense of that apparently Matthews was really bothered by this interview and he was like troubled by it for a long time, which made me, uh, made me happy. Yeah. Anyway. Well, rest in peace, Chris Matthews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, there's been some changes in Matthews' we, career. We may not get rid of Joe Biden, uh-huh. but at least we fucking got rid well, of Chris Matthews. I mean, I mean, I think Matthews, the fact that cable news would elevate a person like that and that this is the kind of person that rises to the top in, in that business tells you everything you need to know about the moral vacuum that is cable news. I will say that... But one of the big lessons to me of the last five years, six years that I, I should have known, I, I should have really internalized before this was that the people on cable news, the people in the New York Times op-ed section aren't actually smart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chance the Gardener. The Gardener? Yes. Since I was a child, I worked in this garden. Then you really are a gardener? Oh, yes. On television, Mr. President, you look much smaller. Dumb as a jackass. As long as the roots are not severed, all is well. And all will be well in the garden. Coffin, I'll leave some information on Mr. Chauncey Gardner's background. What do you mean he's got no background? That's impossible. Listen to that boy. Mr. Gardner, the New York Times spoke of your peculiar brand of optimism. What was your reaction to that? I do not know what it means. You know, Luke, some of us actually like TV. Uh, In fact, some of us like to watch. For instance, (laughs) Chauncey Gardner, also known as Chance the Gardener, played by Peter Sellers, the star of Hal Ashby's 1979 classic, Being There. Well, Will is always keeping it professional with that unbelievably neat little segue from the, the silly freeform section to the uh, the official Michael and Oz portion. Well, of the, the seeds of the freeform section <laughs> grow to the garden of the official section. So this week we had the distinct pleasure of watching a good movie, which is something that, you know, it's a it's a pleasure that we rarely grant ourselves. But I mean, I don't know, as there's like a global... I, th- I feel like we've been watching more of them lately. I guess so. But as there's a global pandemic underway... Every so, movie could be your last. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice to watch this film directed by the late great Hal Ashby, who also directed the wonderful Harold and Maude, which is a film I hope we'll do at some point. Being There is a, is a film that probably uh, not a lot of our listeners have seen. It came out in 1979. It was Peter Sellers' uh, second last film. Um, and as you say, it's like kind of his last good movie, yeah. or his last real movie. And it's a truly remarkable film. I would say it might even be one of my favorites. Whoa. And I'm not even sure where to begin. So I guess we'll, we can just go kind of right into the plot and then, and then we can talk about some of the themes in this movie. The film opens in what looks like a wealthy, prosperous estate. The master of the estate has just died, and a middle-aged man who is the gardener of the house remains in the house not quite knowing what to do until he's forcibly removed by the real estate agents who have taken over the house. This is Chance, the gardener. He just has one name. We quickly realize that he's lived at the house his entire life, has never left the house, and his only context for the world is knowing two people 
the master, uh, who may be his father. Who he calls the old man. Yeah, and the maid, as well as television, which he watches all day, every day when he's not (laughs) gardening. So he leaves the house, doesn't know what to do, starts wandering around town, has nowhere to go, doesn't know how to eat. You know. Yeah, he, he you know he can't take care of himself, and the way Sellers plays a character, I mean, he's he's kind of like a child, you know. He's mm. and and he is he's a perfect innocent being, and I think it's very important, you know, in the, in the opening kind of stanzas of the film, it's established that he really is a person outside of time. You know, he's he's a person without history or or identity or really any kind of memory or, or sense of the world outside that you know you know with any kind of proportion or, or or whatever he just he just sees images on tv and that's his only kind of like he's he's never left the house they ask him the uh realtors or or, or lawyers who um who evict him from the house you know ask him about medical records things like that and they say in the deed to the house there's no mention of anyone working there or at least not for for decades, there's an allusion to somebody who may have been around when he was a child, but that's about it. So he, he is a man without any kind of paper trail or really robust adult identity to speak of. And while he spent so much time watching TV, he doesn't really understand what TV is or how TV relates to the rest of the world. We see him walk past, you know, an electronic store, one of those stores where there's a surveillance camera and he can see himself on the TV and he's fascinated to see himself inside the box. Later, he meets the president of the United States and says, you're much larger than you are on television. <laughs> or he goes on a talk show later and is d- doesn't quite understand it spatially. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, Wait, because it's a, it's a show that he's familiar with from yeah. seeing it on TV. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, it's all right. So, so he, as he's kind of wandering around, eventually he walks into the street and he's bumped by a car or a limousine, uh, which turns out contains a woman named Evelyn Rand, played by uh, Shirley MacLaine who it turns out is you know a woman of some distinction she's married to um you know a very wealthy man played by melvin douglas and chauncey finds his way into their house into their care um they have you know a doctor on site because benjamin rand is very sick of some kind of degenerative illness he's been sick for some time they basically let chance into the house to treat him and hope that he won't sue them yeah and they mistake his name for chauncey gardener and so the film doesn't have in terms of the plot there's not much more than that he you know has dinner with uh, the rands and they're instantly impressed by him and in you know many of the interactions throughout the film people kind of see in Chauncey what they want to see. So in the first few minutes, the maid, Louise, who's the only other person that that lives in the house besides the old man before he's evicted, you know, he's not reacting to emotionally the fact that the old man has died and she's she's yelling at him and she's saying, you know, you it doesn't doesn't matter to you at all, does it? And then he doesn't even say anything. And then she starts apologizing to him and, and she decides instantly that his his lack of a response is actually the the product of he's just he's just too upset mm-hmm. because that moment she just sort of expects him to have a rational reaction and similarly you know the rands when he he's like laconic before them and he just kind of when he does speak in any kind of detail he just uses these gardening metaphors and they project a tremendous amount onto you know his comments about you know if the roots are strong then the garden will grow and things like that um, and so later, when the president comes to visit, who's, you know, uh, Benjamin Rand is a close friend and advisor of the 
president. It's not clear. And, and Rand mentions that he's sort of a kingmaker in Washington. Like, the president seems subordinate to him. Yeah. Rand is, is kind of a permanent fixture of Washington, and he's kind of a... Charles Foster Kane or a Koch brothers type. Yeah, well, he's kind of he's he's clearly old money, which I guess they they kind of are too. But you know, he's lives lives in this is gigantic. It's it looks like a big country estate, even though it's clearly you know the city is clearly not far off. Absolutely, kind of like Palace of Versailles, you know, level of splendor. And the president comes to him, not mm-hmm. vice versa. That's right. And you know, he says to Chauncey. One thing I've learned over the years, you know, keep keep them waiting. So they keep the president waiting in the library. And the president, you know, also is very impressed by, you know, he thinks Chauncey Gardner's uh, comments about the changing of the seasons and how the garden responds. He thinks he's talking about the economy and he gives a speech, uh, you know, the next day, um, the be- you know, where he quotes Chauncey and it be- he becomes kind of a national figure and he's invited, he's called up by the Washington Post. He's invited on national TV. As long as the roots are not severed, all is well. And all will be well in the garden. In the garden? Yes. In a garden, growth has its season. First comes spring and summer, but then we have fall and winter. And then we get spring and summer again. Spring and summer? Yes. <clears throat> then fall and winter? Yes. I think what our insightful young friend is saying is that we welcome the inevitable seasons of nature, but we're upset by the seasons of our economy. Yes. There will be growth in the spring. Hmm. Hmm. And as he stays in the house, Shirley MacLaine, her character, grows, you know, attached to him. Um, she's kind of been starved for affection as her husband has been ill. Um, and it's kind of understood by both her and her husband that, you know, he's going to die soon. And, that, you know, Chauncey is going, to, is going to take care of her. And even though this is kind of a strange... I mean, all of this is very strange that given that it's not clear and it doesn't, I suppose, really even matter how much he really understands about what's going on. But the film has this remarkably tender and gentle quality. It it really is very sweet because people talk to Chauncey, they interact with him. And, uh, and they always kind of come away with what with what they need. I hadn't seen this movie since I was in high school, I think. This is one of those movies that I have a very distinct memory of. You know, being in high school and watching it along with lots of other, like, you know, Pulp Fiction or The Graduate <laughs> or The Shining, you know. All... Movies that are that appear on many a dorm room poster. Movies 101 right. that are at your local Fight video Club. store. Yeah, like, it was, it was one of those movies for me. And, you know, I remembered practically every scene of this movie. I remembered yeah. everything, but what I didn't remember was the tone of it. I remember this movie being kind of much more acidic than it actually is. It's quite melancholy. I remembered it being funnier than it is, too. And you mentioned it's one of your favorite movies, and I like it, but I felt myself 
with a certain distance to it this time, and I'm not quite sure what to attribute that to. I think there's something about the Peter Sellers character. It's a brilliant performance by Peter Sellers. It's a fascinatingly understated and nuanced performance that he gives, but he is like a blank canvas. It's a lot of time spent with this guy who's giving you so little. I found the movie quite affecting, so mm-hmm. I don't relate to that on an emotional level, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by that as a, as a reaction to the movie. Um, but I guess just to finish the the plot, so inevitably, Benjamin Rand passes away. You know, he delivers his last words to Chauncey Gardner. It's clear that you know he's going to leave Chauncey with you know chunks of his company. You know, mm. Chauncey's basically going to inherit this massive estate, and and there's know, even talk maybe of a political career for yeah, him. Yeah. So as President, you know, quotes Chauncey in the speech, he gets the Secret Service to look into him. Uh, he says, I want to know who this guy is. And they're basically unable to find any details apart from the fact that his suits were made in New York City in the 1920s because he's just clearly wearing the suits that were in the house that he came from. Mm-hmm. But besides that, he has no paper trail, no kind of, uh, there, you know, there's no record of him of any kind. So as all of the Washington establishment from the, the White House to the press tries to dig into his background, you know, he's the talk of the town. And as uh, the pallbearers are carrying Benjamin Rand's coffin to its final resting place, and the president is, you know, delivering just the most kind of bland, pompous... This is actually maybe my favorite scene in the movie. The (laughs) The president is delivering sort of a eulogy and he's quoting from Melvin Douglas's great speeches. Yeah, and one of the quotes was, I have no use for people on welfare. None. Uh, they have even less use for me. <laughs> and that's exactly the sort of quote that Just like, you, you could totally see like that quote, like attributed to William F. Buckley or somebody yeah. in some yeah. list of w- political yeah. witticisms. Great quotes. Winston Churchill. Yeah. Something. You know, a yeah. quote that would not pass must, they would get three likes on Twitter yeah. today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so as the pallbearers are carrying uh, uh, Benjamin Rand to his final resting place, you know, they're, they're clearly, they're all Washington power brokers. They're talking about, you know, how they need to, hang out at the White House and the, the president is clearly unpopular and, and uh, he's not going to survive re-election and of course you know Chauncey Gardner's name comes up and Chauncey meanwhile leaves the funeral walks off into the woods and the last thing you see is uh, you know him kind of taking care of various saplings and then he kind of you know takes his umbrella and he just walks out onto some water um, and just never sinks and keeps walking and then the film fades to black it's mm-hmm. quite a, a poignant ending I've always interpreted that ending as being an allusion to to Christ. I think it is. Of course. The, I think the suggestion being, well, that's another guy who spoke entirely in parables. And <laughs> maybe he was misinterpreted, too. Although it almost it kind of cheapens it a little because it makes it sound like just a just a kind of clunky joke. Well, let's know? let's talk about some of the, the different ways of um, of interpreting this movie. I mean, I think it's not a particularly didactic one. It's it's much more kind of um, of a lyrical and, and, and kind of poetic and, and, and emotionally affecting film than, than it is one trying to make you know, any particular point. But I suppose Well, it's a film with a central joke though. Yeah, very much so. Um, but if it if it is offering any kind of particular satire you know, I think it's of a world where people's attention spans are kind of diminished because they're just watching TV. There's a lot of jokes where, you know, Chauncey will say, people ask him, like, what newspapers he reads. 
and he'll say, I watch TV. And then, you know, everybody's just kind of like, oh, yes, of course, who has time to read anymore anyway? Um, and so, you know, it's a world where people form their, you know, opinions and attitudes on the basis of kind of, you know, images that they see and experience politics in particular on a very, you know, aesthetic level such that they kind of project what they want to see or what they need to see onto public figures. And similarly, public figures like the president, who's portrayed as a sort of credibly just generic and mediocre figure, figures like him just kind of project the same kind of emptiness back. And Mm -hmm. it's a sort of mutually reinforcing arrangement to the extent that Chance the Gardener can become a national figure for no other reason than that various people want to see particular things reflected in him. I liked that idea. I felt I saw that idea a lot as the movie went on. I got a little tired of the idea towards the end of it. I think on this viewing, what compelled me more was sort of the stuff that was happening on the edges, the other stuff in the movie, the relationship between Chauncey Gardner and the Melvin Douglas character. I I found... Well, I found it. I found it strangely moving, particularly considering that I sort of hate the Melvin Douglas character. He, the Melvin Douglas character is everything wrong with yeah. with Washington. Yeah. yeah, he's just like a he's he's a plutocrat, and his entire outlook on the world is is you know premised on kind of noblesse oblige. One of the things I found moving about it is you know it's this old man who's. You know, the movie's haunted by death, beginning with the death of Chance's father or master or whatever he is, moving on to the death of his new father surrogate figure. And yeah, it's this man who represents everything wrong with Washington, and he's he's in this palatial house that just feels dead. He's symbolic of something, and there's nothing there's nothing in there, you know? He's striving for something authentic. It's as if he's at the end of his life, and he knows that there's some emptiness there, and Chance is, is filling it, but, but Chance is nothing, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. I find something very moving there about that. There is something very beautiful about it. He, you know, he provides uh, both Benjamin and, and, and Evelyn Rand with, with everything they need. And, and ultimately with Benjamin Rand, he gives him the courage to you know, basically pull the plug on himself mm-hmm. and to kind of stop, uh, stop you know, fighting his illness and to just kind of die gracefully. And with Evelyn, she, she is one of uh, several... Uh, sexually frustrated women in the movie. This was something I'd never really noticed. So this is a recurring theme in the movie is sexually frustrated wives. Um, of powerful men. Well, yeah. So the the two lawyers um, who evict uh, Chance from the house at the beginning, you know, we kind of uh, see them later in the film. It turns out they're married. Um, and there's a scene where they're in bed together and she's watching Chance on the TV and she's saying, you know, I think he's brilliant. And then when her husband has to get up to leave to go do something, you know, she's clearly frustrated. There are a number of scenes where it cuts to the president who is basically impotent. And this is like a a frequent point of conflict and difficulty between he and his wife. And then, of course, there's Evelyn, uh, whose husband has been ill for quite some time. And in one of the most iconic scenes from the movie, after saying goodnight to Chance, she comes into his room with the intention of making love to him. And then all he says to her is, I like to watch. And she is able to reach sexual climax without him actually doing anything. Mm -hmm. Just his mere presence... Is, is enough to give her what she needs. So I, li- I liked your reading about how he has kind of different father figures, and I feel like there are multiple armchair Freudian readings of this movie. I think more more compelling to me than 
the central joke of the movie, which is that he speaks in these parables that aren't parables, is these relationships and the ambiguity of whether or not they're positive, whether or not the kind of sense of liberation Chance is able to give them is false or tragic. Is it good that Shirley MacLaine is finally able to reach, you know, some sort of sexual slash emotional liberation in his presence? Is it good that Melvin Douglas is able to let go and die when basically they're looking at a mirror? So at some point sooner or later, we will have a proper conversation about everything that's actually going on in, in American politics. Um, oh, I, by the way, we talked about being there because it reminded Luke of Joe Biden. <laughs> it didn't It didn't uh, specifically remind me of Joe Biden, but I mean, it strikes me, I mean, this is a silly way of, of articulating this, but you know, I saw earlier today, obviously both Joe Biden and Bernie were giving their responses to coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, and I thought Joe um, really united the country, you know? It was, shut, it was, shut up. I had tears um, in my eyes. So so I only caught a part of the Biden one. I, I watched Bernie's, but there was this tweet from Alyssa Milano, you know, uh, Joe Biden, uh, recent Joe Biden endorser yeah. Alyssa Milano. And she's like, I was crying watching Joe Biden's speech and just thinking, why can't he be president yet? And... One of the kind of darkly hilarious things that's going on right now as Joe Biden, I mean, I won't say he's hiding from public view, but he is like barely appearing in public. He's speaking when he does appear for kind of minutes at a time. There frequently when he does kind of say anything or interact with anybody, he's completely incoherent. I was listening to the Useful Idiots podcast with Kitty Halper and Matt Taibbi today. And they played a clip where Biden was asked about this bizarre interaction he had with the Detroit auto worker, where he, you know, said, you're like, you're full of shit, man, all this kind of stuff. And Biden's asked this, like, very direct question about, you know, why do you have these weird interactions with voters or something? And he just says, like, he, he gives an answer that is to a question that nobody asks, where he just says, like, well, I'm not surprised to see Bernie Sanders, you know, uh, echoing Trump or something like that. <laughs> And it's just clear that like he's just either does not understand the question or he just has a stock of like somebody some handler like told him like just knowing that he's just completely out of it some handler told him like well anytime you you draw a blank just say something about tying bernie to trump or something all of this is happening and the contest is not over but it's obviously taken a, a you know significant turn for the worse from bernie's point of view since super tuesday but, I mean, what's so remarkable about this is the person that institutional liberalism is elevating as the anti-Bernie candidate. I mean, there are so many things that should be kind of symbolically wrong with Joe Biden, you know, that should be problems for, well, for institutional liberalism. The most obvious one being that he's kind of so bumbling and incoherent and gaff-prone that this guy that they are elevating is like, this, this is the man that we he's need to bring dignity. dignity and honor. But, you know, he's like barely able to deliver a coherent sentence. When he does, you know, cable news, some hack on cable news will be like, well, I thought the vice president was, you know, he was, he made sense tonight. He was speaking in full sentences, you know. 
You know, meanwhile, you know, when Biden does actually appear, he's literally like manhandling voters and all these people that were like, oh, a random Twitter users tweeting snake emojis at Elizabeth Warren is like is is literal violence. But then when Joe Biden physically like grabs voters and swears at them, (laughs) they're like, I thought this was his best moment on the campaign trail so far. So there's all that stuff. And then there's the fact that like we are being asked to believe that like so there's this like horrifically racist president, this kind of institutionalized bigotry in the White House. We're being asked to believe that the repudiation of all of that is the guy that literally invented mass incarceration, bears significant responsibility for the drug war and gave Strom Thurmond's eulogy. And again, then you read these like gushing tweets from people who are trying to work themselves. They're trying to get excited about Joe Biden and the yeah. idea of President Joe Biden. They're like, when I saw him talk about the coronavirus, yeah. I was crying. But Bernie Sanders used the term wage slavery in 1972. So he, he, <laughs> he's canceled. Yeah. But but again, it is it is just, you know, and this is like, an you know, I wanted to watch Being There because I love it. I'm just deeply fond of it as a film. And it's nice when Will and I get to have these little field trips where we watch real movies. But I could not help think about Biden in relation to this movie, because, you know, among the the many themes in it, it's about how people are able to project tremendous symbolic power and uh, authoritativeness onto these kind of empty vessels. And, you know, the source for all of that is their own deep desires and and needs. And, And, you know, in the case of Biden right now, you know, what's propelling him, I think, really has nothing to do with him. I mean, he really is a kind of an empty vessel. He's the last man standing among a whole kind of field of of cipher candidates that the Democratic Party elevated. But lots of terrified people are going to the polls because there are two great conflicting meta-narratives in American politics right now. One, the desire to see some kind of sense of just normalcy returned. Like I'm sick of watching, the, I'm sick of turning on the news mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and being upset. I'm sick of, you know, I'm sick of a president that gets basic facts wrong and, you know, doesn't have the right fact checkers and advisors. I'm sick of the wrong celebrities being happy. Yeah. I want I want my celebrities to be happy. <laughs> I want them to be able to go back to brunch. It's that desire versus... Another one that I'm much more sympathetic to, which is, you know, normal is what begot all of this, is where all of this can ultimately be sourced. And that calls for something much more transformative and much more oppositional and, and confrontational. Um, and unfortunately, at the, at the moment, that second narrative seems to be losing. I have no use for those on welfare. No patience whatsoever. But if I am to be honest with myself, I must admit that they have no use for me either. Well, folks, every now and then on the podcast, we like to do a fan episode. This is our way of giving back to the people who brought us to where we are, top of the world. That's right. This week, we are taking your questions for our latest fan episode. Send any questions to Luke and or myself to Podcast at gmail.com by March 19th, 2020 at, uh, oh, let's say noon Eastern time. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Although if you send it an hour later, we're not going to, we're not going to veto it. <laughs> uh, ask anything you want. Ask, you know, what's the meaning of life? How can I uh, uh, be a better partner? <laughs> if you want advice on lifting, yeah. you know, 
But what did we? What did people? Last fan episode was fun, but I've forgotten what we asked people. Lots of lots of people asked us a lot of political type questions. Okay. I think there were some there were some really good ones. In fact, there was one that was so smart about the aesthetics of Soviet Yugoslavia that we weren't actually able to yeah. answer. But I I loved it. Um, yeah. People asked us a mix of political questions, personal questions. If you've been a listener to this show for you know a short time a long time whatever and you're into that sort of thing go for it ask but, us anything but here's the thing we are gonna have it on the patreon next week that's right so you will have to fork over five dollars to hear the answer to your question that's right there are no free lunches in this town <laughs> yeah and as i often say will and i are very bad at doing kind of the business side of this the promotional side you know we just like to have fun folks that's right um, but one thing i often forget to say is you know, give us some love. Uh, apparently, it helps with the algorithms on your podcast app right now. However, you're listening, uh, give us a rating, give us a review, even if it's just you know one sentence. This is good, or you know maybe this is bad, but preferably this is good. We got um, a one star review from somebody who thought they were grading Michael Moore's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, um, but yeah, uh, you know, give us give us some love, and and uh, that'll you know help more people find out about the show. And um, if you do enjoy the free episodes, I'll say it again, we do do um, two other episodes per month behind the Patreon. Uh, that's where we're R-rated. We say all the problematic stuff. We can't get into the free ones. So if you want to get in on that, join us at the Al Gore level and unlock the Patreon. Now watch this drive. What was the message, Mr. Gardner? Now get this honky. I <laughs> was... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Sorry. Okay. What was the message, Mr. Gardner? Now get this honky. You go tell Raphael that I ain't taking no jive. That I ain't taking no jive from no Western Union messenger. You tell that asshole if he... (laughs) 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 Yes, you tell that asshole... Ain't taking no jive from no Western Union manager. Messenger. <laughs> manager. What am I saying? Sorry. From no Western Union messenger. You tell that asshole if he got something to tell me to get his ass done yet. <laughs> oh. What was the message, Mr. Geiger? It's slightly long, but I will try to remember it. Uh, Now, get this honky. You go tell Raphael 
that I ain't taking no jive from no Western Union messenger. You tell that asshole if he got something to tell me to get his ass down here himself. Then he said that I was to get my white ass out of there quick or he cut it. Ha, 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 ha.